The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Um, probably most of you are familiar with the idea that the two wings of Buddhism are wisdom and compassion. That, um, and I like the image of wings because um, a, you know, a bird doesn't fly with just wings. It also needs the body of the bird to hold the wings there. And so the two wings are wisdom and compassion and you get to be the body. <laughs> and you fly with those two. And um, so usually they're, they're paired. Both of them are considered important. Uh, they need to fly in a balanced way, otherwise there's no flying operate in a balanced way, that uh, wisdom without compassion can be kind of dry and, and uh, in some ways disconnected. Uh, compassion without wisdom can get sentimental and overly identified with what's going on. So you need to have both operating together. But here in the list of the paramis, uh, the teaching of the paramis, it isn't, uh, compassion is not paired with wisdom. Compassion, in a sense, is is paired with liberation. And that liberation and compassion are the two wings of each parami. And so, uh, here today we're talking about the parami of wisdom. And so, these two wings of wisdom that make wisdom, lets wisdom fly. The wing of of compassion, the wing of liberation. And what these two have in common, liberation and... and, um, and uh, compassion is a concern with suffering. That suffering really, you know, lays at the heart of all this. And uh, in the encounter with our own suffering, we can certainly have compassion for ourselves, but in the encounter with our own suffering, it, here is where you can make the most difference in terms of becoming liberated from suffering, to somehow find a path to uh, letting go of the causes of suffering in ourselves, the clinging, the resistance, the fear, bring on suffering. And um, uh, in the, when we encounter suffering in others, then um, it elicits our compassion um, to be concerned about their welfare and want to help alleviate their suffering. Um, as I said this morning, both you know, these ten qualities of the paramis uh, relate directly to both liberation, the movement towards liberation, movement towards compassion. And the same way, I think... Um, um, the movement, both both the movement towards liberation, both movement towards liberation leads itself to compassion, because as we get liberated, we get liberated from what what I call the the um, crusts in our heart. Some of us have cr- we're all crusty, and um, and mindfulness is like a tenderizer, and then uh, you know it softens the crust so that we feel and sense what's going on in the world more, and so it's natural to kind of feel more compassion. Hopefully it works the other way as well, that as we engage in a world in a more compassionate way, we start becoming aware of the limitations that we live under when we suffer. If we suffer because of the suffering of the world, um, that can pull us down, can exhaust us, can you know, be quite devastating to us. And so there has to be some, if we're really going to encounter the suffering in the world and be of help, there has to be at some point a turning towards ourselves to deal with the, the issues here, what's going on, that doesn't make the compassion completely easeful or easy or clean or something. Um, so one way or the other, we're, we're, we're responding to suffering is, uh, is a topic here. And wisdom then, the parami of wisdom, relates to both. Um, there's compassion to be found in wisdom. There's liberation to be found through wisdom. There is um, uh, liberation uh, is the guide for understanding what wisdom is. You know, there's you know, an infinite number of things you can, you can be wise about. Uh, there's a few of you who probably are quite wise in how to use a computer. I'm not one of them. Um, and, um, and so that's, you know, but the wisdom about using a computer, you know, hopefully helps you suffer less. But, um, you know, we're talking about the definition of Buddhist wisdom or the, 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 um, the kind of the, what frames it or what gives it kind of its definition is it's, that wi- it's the wisdom that supports practice, practice of liberation, practice of freedom, practice of compassion. 
So, um, so um, you know, there's a con- there's, there's, there's the connection between wisdom and liberation is that liberation gives is what kind of helps us understand what is wise. What, you know, to be discerning about what is helpful for ending suffering. The way that the connection that wisdom has to compassion is that um, so we can be wise in our compassion and so that our compassion informs our wisdom. And the two, you know, they're completely, I feel, completely engaged and related. If your practice for liberation is self-centered, focus on yourself to be liberated, sooner or later you'll encounter the limitation of that self-centered approach. And you, don't have to, you, you can take your time to get to that point. There's no hurry. But at some point you'll feel this is not, you know, it doesn't make sense anymore. Just do it here for myself. And, um, and it opens up towards others. And if you open up towards others, uh, at some point it doesn't make sense to include you as others, as another. And you can care for yourself as well. So it all kind of comes together. And there's not a really absolute difference between self and other in terms of our practice and what we focus on. So compassion now is an important part of wisdom. How does compassion inform wisdom? How does wisdom inform compassion? What's the relationship to them? Is an important part as we explore the parami, the perfection of wisdom in this topic. So um, I would like you to explore this topic um, in a little exercise on your own, kind of stretch yourself to see if you can come to some new understanding around the connection between wisdom and compassion. And um, so what I'd like to do is have you um, go into pairs again. And, um, and first, uh, spend about, um, each of you first will have three minutes. Just to talk, one person to talk for three minutes, and then the other one to talk for three minutes. And after those six minutes are over, then there can be more of a discussion, more of a back and forth, ping pong, back and forth. It doesn't have to be so long. Maybe it should be shorter, you know, just to back and forth, ex- some way explore the topic further. But first, give yourself the three minutes to really... And um, so in those just three minutes, see if you can um, briefly uh, recount an event where uh, you witnessed someone else be compassionate, maybe towards yourself, maybe towards someone else. Um, And then how was that compassion wise? It helps if you, compute, you, you choose a compassionate action that was wise to begin with. So if you can remember, think back, well, you know, what, what, what compassion have you witnessed in the world? You've seen someone else do. And what was wise about that compassion? That compassionate action, that compassionate expression. Um, so that's the topic. Uh, uh, think of, a, think of some, some situation and then try to explore what was wise about that compassion. Um, and um, and then continue in your three minutes, you know, to talk about. You can then kind of after a while, if you want, you can slide away from the particular story that you told, and just you know uh, reflect a little bit about uh, what you think, uh, what can be, what are, what are, what's the role, what's the place, what's the uh, uh, relationship with uh, compassion to wisdom. You know, how is wisdom expressed through compassion? How is compassion found in wisdom? Make sense? Enough? Any questions? Okay. So, um, so you form a, for a dyad, and then we'll ring a bell after three minutes, so you know when it's time to switch. And the other person has a chance to talk for three minutes. We'll ring another bell after that second three minutes, and then it's more open. The two of you can just talk back and forth and see where that goes. Okay. Thank you. topic of wisdom and compassion. If you could uh, come up, think and consider what would be a, a question you have around this topic, around this theme of wisdom and compassion, around the wisdom that's expressed in compassionate acts. What would be a question? If you could ask a question on what you've been discussing or this topic, what would you ask? What would you like to know?
So, um, I'd be uh, delighted, I believe, I hope, <laughs> uh, to hear some of the, your questions. Those of you who came up with questions. So if we could just, maybe someone, maybe someone could be the MC, walk around so we can make a little faster. <laughs> over, over here, Elaine. So one, one of my questions is, um, in order to have wise compassion, I mean, for me, the, 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 the key element of wise compassion is intention. And yet there are things that I've done with what I thought, w- with good intentions, um, that I thought were compassionate, but they didn't turn out well. <laughs> so what's the question? So how do you how do you know that? I mean, how do you know that this is a wise act of compassion when you have good intentions, but in retrospect you can see that it, you know, there were un, um, there were consequences Great. that were not anticipated. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, during during the uh, talk that I had with Nancy here, uh, we brought up a story that I uh, recalled when I was in uh, Sri Lanka about this dog that was infected with uh, insects. I mean, completely overrun with insects. And I felt like, you know, uh, so sorry for this dog. I wanted to do something for him. So I went to the vet, which was in a town close to where we were at, which they had a vet, and um, I, I explained the situation to him. And uh, he said, well, they, they've got those collars that you can put around the dog, uh, and they'll, um, you know, uh, take care of the uh, bug problem. But uh, there are some of the insects that, that die, that get killed in the process. And I said, well, I, I, I can't do that. You know, there's got to be another alternative. And he says, uh, well, how about soap? Uh, they've got a special kind of medicated soap that will do the same thing. And I said, yeah, but is it going to kill the bugs? Uh, and he said, yeah, some of them. And uh, I, I said, well, I, I can't do that either. So, so, so I had to leave, I had to leave the, uh, the veterinarian with a sense of uh, um, feeling that, well, there's just nothing I can do for this dog. And uh, you know, like, like the dog was a cute little dog, uh, uh, had a good uh, personality and uh, very uh, very nice, but uh, he was just completely overrun with the bugs. And I even explained the situation to the, the chief monk there. And uh, the chief monk, you know, I, he's, he's seen the dog around there, around the place, you know. And he didn't seem really too concerned about the about the animal, you know. I mean, it's, it's like, well, that's his karma. So you have a question? The question is, is like, <clears throat> the question is, it's like, where does that, that I guess the wisdom... Um, of being able to just uh, walk away let, and realize the fact that that's, that's the dog's karma. There's nothing I can do about it. So, so when we feel compassion for somebody or some being and there's nothing we can do, what wisdom helps you to disengage from that in an appropriate way? Yeah. Yeah, good. Good question. Thank you. Yeah. Great. So someone else? Over here, Philippa. No, I mean, no, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I had never thought of this before, but um, in situations when I don't express compassion, you know, the heart is too crusty or whatever, and I turn away from the suffering. So my question, or my wondering is, is that also, or is that a failure of wisdom? Um, it just came up in terms of this discussion. Great. Okay, thank you.
So you asked us to think of a question, and um, mine was exactly how does compassion operate with respect to alleviation of suffering? <clears throat> so what's the connection between compassion and actually alleviating suffering? Great question. Okay. I'm an advocate of we all do the best we can. Isn't compassion an action, uh, just an act of doing, of compassion? And wisdom, what we learn from that action, which we apply to the next compassionate act? So, so the question is, in that compassion might be an action, is wisdom, that asks, is, is wisdom what we learn from how we act? Great, okay. Thank you. There's this concept of idiot compassion, and um, I, I actually found this gentleman's story about the dog very disturbing. And I just, my reaction was, save the damn dog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the monk who said, oh, that's his karma, it just seemed cruel and heartless. And so the question is? (laughs) (laughs) A pox. (laughs) Can you pull a question out of that? The question is, um, oh, I... How does, you know, is it, is it possible to uh, make a compassionate gesture based on just one's normal human response without having to figure out if it's a good Buddhist idea? That's my question. So, so that's a, it's, a, it's a great question. Is that question personal enough for you? Yeah. Is, is there a question that's more personal? Because you're struggling with the story and the response and what you heard. Uh, is there some question that would help you? That's maybe deeper than the one you asked. I don't, I don't know what it is. Um... You, might, you might think about it a little bit. I mean, it was a great question. It's a good concern. And I'm interested in knowing if there's something that's even more you know, that comes closer to your heart, that's more, would be really helpful for you in a very personal way. Because um, I was a little concerned the question you asked, maybe it's a little bit, it's an important question, it certainly comes from your reaction in a nice way. Mm-hmm. But I, I wonder if the question, the way you worded it, um, takes you a little bit away from yourself rather than into yourself, and if it's some way of having a question that brings you in more. So you don't have to come up with it now, but you might think about it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. So here. Um, what is the difference between compassion and empathy? Great, thank you. I'm just asking for some insight about how to be compassionate if the dog is snarling and, and kind of a little rabbit and might, you know, bite you. So you feel, you feel compassionate, but how do you express that compassion when you're being attacked? Yes. Um, I sometimes struggle with the, the, the line between where does compassion and an over-identification begin? As with the dog, I can't get past feeling completely identified with that poor dog. And I, I, this is a familiar pattern for me. So, so how do you identify the difference between compassion, yeah. connection, and over-identification? Yes. Good question. Okay. We have a lot of dog lovers in this room. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I struggled with Glenn's story as well. And um, I guess my question is, how do we, because I would 
would have probably put the collar on the dog or given it a flea bath or something. But um, how do we know that we can trust the motivations of our heart uh, so. and that they're wise enough? Uh, so how do we trust the motivations of our heart and know they're wise enough? Thank you. Um, my question is something like, what would it feel like to be at ease with the amount of energy I put towards ex- external compassion, action? So, so given all, all, the, all the attention you put on external compassion, how can you be compassionate and engage in a way that's more useful? Okay, thank you. Uh, so what was coming up for me was, uh, is there an example of true compassion that's not rooted in wisdom? And then hearing Glenn's story with the dog kind of shifted that. I went to equanimity as wisdom. And uh, how do you watch that uh, that near enemy, the indifference, um, while maintaining compassion, and then it actually is all—it's threading to all these questions of trusting the heart, you know, trusting your own uh, discernment, uh-huh. trusting the wisdom that's coming through you. Thank you for sharing that story, by the way. So the uh, maybe the question then is if, if uh, what form does compassion take? when we can't act and make a difference. <clears throat> and so that's you know, the role of equanimity, when you can't make a difference and things are going in a way that are not good, but you can't do anything, then there's this equanimity practice and how is that not indifference? And how is the equanimity a part of compassion? How is its expression of compassion itself? And, um, and then, that's, you know, as you said, it's all weaves together, right? So that seems to maybe connect back to Barb's question of the ease. What is compassion and being practical? What, Sorry? What does, what, how does practical and compassion and wisdom come? Oh, so how does wisdom, compassion connect yeah. with being practical? Yeah. The practical is good, good question. Now how do you become practical? Well, I'm, not, I'm not here. Yes, good. I'm not going to answer questions now. But <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're just taking questions. <laughs> Uh, His story about the dog reminded me of another case that I kind of had a question a long time ago. There was this temple I was going, and they had a problem with rats uh, at the house. And they were trying to figure out how to deal with it. And, you know, they talked about putting uh, rat traps down and all that. But then I think what they ended up is bring a cat and the nature take care of it kind of thing. But... I wasn't quite sure if that was really the right solution either. So we kind of asked, and you know, nobody seemed to really know. But that's the, how they dealt with it. So the question is, yeah, the the practicality too is like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess I'd rather if I had a choice between putting down the uh, trap, rat trap, or a cat. Cats seem to be more natural way of dealing with it. But like, yeah, with the dog case, I will go more practical way. I say, yeah, take care of the dog first, kind of thing. But when you're learning about not killing any living, you know, creatures and stuff, yeah, it, I agree. But then you need to come up with some practical way of dealing with things, situations too. So, okay, great. Yeah, thank I'm, you. I think from listening to all this, I came up with my question. Um, is the intersection of wisdom and compassion arises at that sparkling of that intersection when we realize that there is no permanent action action for anything that's happening? No permanent. There's no permanent answer. No. For for an experience. So is and and is that when. When wisdom and compassion intersect, to me, where maybe it, it shines, 
And I'm wondering when we actually learn that that's, for me, maybe it's a very personal part of my practice, that there actually is not one specific answer for anything at any time. So the, so the issue is, is there, is there not a perfect answer for anything? And so what's the question around so that? I'm wondering if that's where the, tr oh, that's the where true intersection where wisdom, compassion meet and cross one another. Okay, great. In that place where there's a recognition of there really is no true answer. Great, for great, something. good, thank you. Maybe two more. So I'm interested in the uh, relationship between wisdom and compassion when you're about to exterminate the rats or the insects. <laughs> Do we stay only compassionate for the dog, or is there a compassion for the worms and insects as well? And, uh, if, we, and if we take that into account, what's the difference between compassion for an animal and a, a dog and an insect? And, um, and how do we negotiate that difference if we see a difference? And, and how do we feel about it? And, you know, it's... So I have a question about um, two states of heart or mind when you are doing a compassionate act. So for example, um, I may do a compassionate act out of fear that something bad will happen. Or I may do a compassionate act out of love for that being. And it feels very different. And my question is, I mean, it feels like the compassionate act of coming from a place of, a, of an open heart is, has more wisdom, but I don't know. I mean, one feels better than the other, but I just, it's just... Good, okay, great. Okay, so thank you for all the questions. It was, I think it was uh, very nice for me to hear, valuable, and one of the things I wanted to make a point by going through this is that one of the great ways of being wise is to ask questions rather than having answers. Some people think, oh, if you're wise, I have all the answers for everything. But maybe if you're wise, you're really good at asking questions. And that questions are what open doors a bit more than answers. So that, uh, you know, to explore, your, you know, to cultivate and develop your capacity to ask questions and look at questions and look from, and not rhetorical questions where you already know the answer, but, but uh, you know, real, uh, you, know, you know, like you're perplexed, like you'd like to know. Okay, so um, let's take a break. This will be our final break, and then um, we'll come back and uh, and um, and uh, for the last session of the afternoon. Thank you. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, what gets in the way of wisdom, uh, in particularly in the way that, um, or delusions get in the way of wisdom. Um, in some way, the, or, or delusions are as the things that we believe in. So sometimes we may intellectually um, 
we think we know, we, we study the Dharma, we understand that, you know, letting go is the way to freedom, and, and you know, all these really um, great conceptual ideas that we have. Uh, but somewhere underneath is the belief that um, if we actually let go, our whole life is going to collapse. Things are going to fall apart. Uh, so um, a lot of our process in working with, um, in developing wisdom, is really seeing through those delusions or those beliefs we have. Um, in Buddhist practice, there, um, there are like four primary, what we call distortions or beliefs, uh, that keep us deluded. And um, that's, it's one way of, of referring it to it. The word is uh, vipalasa, if I got that right. Um, and so the first part of it, uh, the first one of these false beliefs is viewing what's impermanent as permanent. Okay, and, um, and it's one of the things that really causes a lot of suffering, that particular point of view. Uh, and again, you know, it's obvious to us, you know, you know, our kids grow up, you know, uh, I didn't have gray hair 20 years ago, you know, all, all the... You know, it's obvious that things change to our intellect. Um, and, but on some levels, we really hold on to the belief that somehow some things don't change. Some things are, you know, are, should always be there, like our health um, or, or partners, you know, uh, love forever. You know, and so what happens when we invest as if those things are permanent and we make our happiness dependent on those things, on these things that are just flit, can go away at, at, at a moment's instance, you know, or homes, or all the things that are impermanent in our life, and we invest our happiness in those things, um, that causes great suffering when those things are gone. Um, and so there's a certain very core level in which we tend to think that somehow uh, our success is going to last. Or, uh, or children, or families. Everything, everything in our lives, there's some sort of sense that uh, underneath. Um, we tend to want to push that reality away. And it's one of the reasons that the Buddha recommended um, the five daily recollections. And, um, and, and if you... For those of you who are writing them down, I will send those out on the email list. I think they're wonderful to uh, reflect on. Um, I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot avoid aging. I am of the nature to become ill or injured. I cannot avoid illness or injury. I am of the nature to die. I cannot avoid death. All that is mine dear and delightful, will change and vanish. I am the owner of my actions, born of my actions, related to my actions. I am supported by my actions. Any thoughts, words, or deeds I do, good or evil, those I will inherit. Um, so it's very, I, you know, I think it's a very helpful thing is to reflect on impermanence on a regular basis. But it's really the practice, when we actually sit there and practice, that we can actually really come to face with the deeper aspects of impermanence uh, to... Um, to dissolve, to see through that illusion, delusion of, of permanence that we have. Uh, the second distortion is um, what is suffering? We mistake suffering for happiness. Um, now, one of the obvious things, you know, to give you some practical example, is, is uh, you know, owning a lot of stuff. A lot of people think, oh, if I have all this money and all these things, you know, then I'll be happy. And how many of you have more stuff in your house so you know what to deal with? Um, right. Um, how much time do you spend of your life maintaining your stuff? Uh, so, you know, it's very easy to make that mistake. Um, 
Uh, the other aspect of that, you know, that we mistake is we, we tend to think that if we just get what we want, then we'll be happy. And if we don't get what we don't want, then we'll be happy. And um, that's a mistake. Getting what we want does, does not actually make us happy. It, it might for a moment, there might be a moment of happiness, but let's say uh, somebody wins gold medal, you know, or actually winning the lottery is a great example. You know, oh, if I could only win the lottery, then I'd be happy. And they've done these studies where they showed people a year later are, are definitely no happier than they were before they, they wanted, and some actually destroyed their lives. So getting what you want does not necessarily give you happiness because you can't hold on to it. So you've got all your money, now you've got to get a better security system for all your stuff. Um, you know, or you've got th- this perfect partner and now they're um, uh, aging, they're getting sick, all these things are happening that you know, they're, they're no longer this perfect situation. Um, you know, you've got the perfect kids who leave home. Uh, so it's all, you know, all these things that we invest in our happiness goes away. Um, the next distortion is what is empty of self to be self. We mistake what isn't self to be self. And a really good example um, on a very practical level is how we identify with our looks. You know, our looks who we are, but how many of you have gotten upset because either a bad hair day, a no hair day, um, you know, these diff, you know, um, identifying with our jobs. You know, we're very successful in the job. We lose it. You know, and all of a sudden, you know, who are we? I remember um, when I retired, uh, and just going out socially. It was, uh, you know, people would say, "Well, what do you do?" You know, and there was just this. Well, who am I? You know, I, I no longer have this, this thing I was identifying with. It really took me a while to kind of come to terms with that, uh, that aspect of identifying. Uh, we identify with our children. You know, you see the parents with their, you know, my, um, you know, my kid is a something student. You know, it's, it's a, yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, I think I saw when my kid can beat up your straight-A student, right? <laughs> Um, you know, we identify with our images. You know, I'm, I'm cool, I'm hip, I'm, you know, I'm strong, I'm smart. Um, you know, another ex- an example um, I was thinking about, I have this uh, f- longtime friend who, uh, he grew up in a way that he did very poorly in school due to family circumstances. And so he grew up kind of believing he wasn't very smart. And... Um, <laughs> And over the years, you know, he actually found out he had tremendous talents. He's kind of become one of these renaissance men who they can fix anything, into computer programming, complex math problems, you know, amazing artists, you know, just kind of a little bit of everything. And yet, whenever uh, the the subject arises, he feels like he's still stupid. You know, it's like he, it's just that belief underneath. It doesn't matter what he does in this you know, that belief is still underneath, that false belief. Uh, he hasn't been able to um, see through that and see how life really is for him. And so the fourth of the dist- distortions is um, we mistake what is not beautiful to be beautiful. Um, now, I think traditionally um, uh, we it was talked about as the human body. You know, it's like we tend to, uh, I'm not sure if that was directed a little bit to the monks, you know, who were, uh, you know, vowed to be celibate. But, uh, you know, that, that there's this tendency to see the human body as this very attractive, beautiful, uh, you know, object that we lust for. And, um, you know, and, and the teaching is that, you know, but if we really look deeply, we see the urine and the feces and the farts and the, you know, burps and, you know, everything that, the other, the other aspects of this beautiful human body. And so it's very easy to get infatuated with just, you know, this, this thing that we see. And we see that often in relationships when people fall in love. Right? You see this person and for maybe about a year they don't have any faults. You know, and then, you know, finally the relationship settles in and you see um, the non-beautiful aspects that might be there. Um, 
And so if we are really focused on believing that the non-beautiful is beautiful, then we're deeply disappointed. Oh, this person has failed me. I found the wrong person. Or, or however, you know, uh, we might do. Um, you know, you look at art. You know, I've, you know, I've uh, looked at something on a wall that, you know, that's worth thousands of dollars. I said, uh, was that a mistake? You know, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, it's a not beautiful, but we can give a lot of meaning to what we think is beautiful. The other aspect of delusion is that we tend to see what we want to see or what we expect to see. And um, an example is um, there's a school teacher uh, who um, was given a class of students uh, who um, she was told were like really gifted students. And they were actually um, uh, kind of the troubled students who were having a really hard time in school. And what was really interesting, at the end of the course, this, uh, those students were doing really well because the teacher was expecting them to do really well. And so she taught them that way. And so in the same way, you know, what are we expecting out of ourselves? Um, you know, what are those beliefs, those deep-held beliefs that get in the way of our wisdom? If we hold the belief that people aren't trustworthy, for instance, uh, is that what we look for? You know, if we dislike someone, do we just only notice what's, you know, all the neg- their negative qualities? Do we notice them as a whole person? Um, you know, do we look for, when we look at somebody um, uh, from the opposite political spectrum, you know, do we see them as a whole person or do we just see them, you know, for their ideas uh, that they stand for? Or do we see them as a person capable of love, capable of suffering? So, um, so just going over the, the four, these four delusions, you know, the viewing, what's impermanent as permanent, what is suffering to be happiness, what is empty of self to be self, what is not beautiful to be beautiful. And we can consider those things in reflections, but as we deepen our practice, we, we don't have to push those delusions away. They just clarify themselves. We see through them. And um, so let's... Um, um, we'll go ahead and uh, move into an exercise now. And um, we're going to break up into groups of threes. And um, so I'll tell you what we're going to do first, and then we'll go ahead and, and do it. So... Um, Excuse me. <clears throat> we're going to do uh, two separate questions. So we're going to do groups of threes, and you're going to kind of briefly go from, you know, each person will speak briefly, and then just kind of keep going around in a circle as we work with the question. And then, um, and then there'll be a little bit of dis- open discussion among the three of you. And then uh, we'll do a second question. So I'll let you know what they are when we do, when we do it. In the meantime, go ahead and uh, get into groups of three. Um, but do it somewhere where you can still hear, hear me speaking. Okay, so the question is going to be, um, what do you believe has to happen in your life so you can be happy? Okay, so so each of you talk for yeah. So each of you talk for a very brief period, and then go on to the next person. Um, you know, at the end, uh, you'll have a little time to do more of an open flow. Uh, so go ahead. Now take a moment um, to ask yourself the question: How do you experience happiness? What is happiness like for you?
so we'd like to take just a little time to um, have you share uh, a little bit about these last two exercises. Uh, so um, we've got a couple of mics to go around. Um, so who would like to start? Start with you, and why don't you offer <laughs> off, offer uh, one word what that was like, and then pass it around. Let's go around and see. Offer everybody offer a word. Ease. 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 Uh, reflective. Sangha. Connection. Peace. Grateful. Feel connected. Goodness. Grateful. Um, grateful. <laughs> Unconditional. Fun. Appreciation. Calm. Joyful. Uh, simplicity. Revealing. We're going to keep going this way. Keep going on your left. Let's finish that circle. Unconditional. Joyful. Happy. Honest. Happy. Sharing. Connected. Really getting the sun in, in my essence of who re I really am. Fun. Gratitude. Renunciation. Loving kindness. Enriching. Alive with gratitude. In the moment. Connected. Joyful. Opening. Connection. Thank you. Um, so how, how do you experience happiness? I experience um, one form of happiness through um, happiness of others. That's very palpable. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> it's like the curtain has come down. It's just, you know, there's nothing between me and out there. Sometimes I experience it as just letting go of something, just the freedom and liberation. And um, I think sometimes it can feel happiness for no good reason at all. Thank you. I have uh, identified two forms of happiness. One has got sort of high energy, giddy, silly really having fun, running around. Mm -hmm. And the other is a much more quiet, 
present, calm, absorbed, that, that kind of thing you had when you were a kid, and you were just utterly absorbed in something, that makes me feel happy too. Yeah, with this exercise, I thought I wanted to say a lot. And, uh, and then I couldn't come up with more to say after uh, having the space to check in with my intentions. Uh, and there's a, uh, a great happiness, like a simple happiness that's, uh, that's always very close to that. It's always very close to that experience, being able to to check in, and then I uh, actually started formulating this on the last Dharma practice day, uh, being able to bring a sense of ease to any situation. Uh, so I was thinking, I'm calling it BYOE, bring your own ease. Because <laughs> sometimes you'll just be in kind of these chaotic situations, and if you could even bring an incremental amount of ease, there's, there's a happiness that's not too far away from that as well. So. Okay. Thank you. I connect with that, the uh, calm type of happiness. And it, happiness, isn't for, happiness isn't for a thing. Happiness is. I experience happiness as warm light inside me, and sometimes it can be very close and very easy, and sometimes it can be very hard to reach, but I know that it's always there. I experience happiness, at least sometimes, as um, being wide awake but free from stress. Anyone else? We have room for one more comment. Right behind you. Experience happiness through other people's <laughs> happiness. Okay. Thank you. And I'm going to hand over the sound to Gil. So um, <clears throat> it's a tremendous help on the path of practice to have an abundant supply of wisdom. And, um, but wisdom is not something that is, you know, is, that you need to look externally for. It's really a matter of finding it in yourself. Um, <clears throat> and uh, if you think of wisdom not as knowledge, understanding, but rather it's a process of coming to understanding. It's a process of investigation. It's a process of discernment. It's a process of looking more carefully. And it's a process of asking good questions, exploring and questioning. Um, if, the, if the motivation is strong enough to go the, walk the path, um, and you use that motivation, the strong motivation for practice, to look for wisdom, to look for understanding, look for what's most helpful in any situation, all the wisdom you'll need is available in yourself. And so it's a, it's a, wisdom is not a fixed thing, but it's a process that's discovered and fold that you use and apply all the time. And um, in terms of the perfection of wisdom, the mother of all the Buddhas, there's a long tradition in Buddhism also of identifying that particular form of wisdom in a very particular way. And uh, that can be, in, this, in maybe in ordinary terms, could be called um, um, the uh, wisdom of non-attachment. 
or it's in more technically it's called um, uh, the wisdom of non-appropriation, where you're able to look at something, experience something, look at something, think about something, and um, you don't, uh, in no way does the mind <clears throat> take hold of what it sees. No way does it take hold of what it thinks. It doesn't resist, doesn't take hold. The mind stays, um, uh, it's called non-abiding. It doesn't abide anywhere. It doesn't settle in anything. It doesn't get fixated or rooted or anchored in any particular thing. But the, the mind stays non-attached, stays open, stays aware. And there's something about that that is, the, is the, um, the mother of all the Buddhas, something like that, which is considered to be the perfection of wisdom. And what it is, is that uh, it's the perfection of the path. When the path becomes quite mature, <clears throat> then there's something about the heart, the mind, where it can stay open and aware of what's going on without needing to do anything with anything with what you're aware of. You don't appropriate it, you don't hold on to it, you don't uh, stick there. Uh, you're aware of it, you're mindful, you're wise about what you do. It doesn't mean that you're indifferent, but um, it, it's like uh, in modern uh, parlance, perhaps, it's kind of like having a Teflon mind. Um, maybe that's not a, it doesn't sound very compassionate, but uh, you know, this non-appropriation and non-attachment is the ultimate form of wisdom. So whether you have any sense of what that's like or not, uh, wisdom is your responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the books or the teachers that you have. Um, if anything else, anything, those books and teachers are pointing you, hopefully, back to yourself so that you can engage in that process of discernment, that process of questioning, that process of exploration, that process of uh, figuring out what is best for you in any given situation, what's best for the situation. And, um, and uh, so you don't so much fall back on old knowledge or fixed principles so much as really uh, um, trying to discover fresh and new uh, what this situation requires, what's needed here. Um, as you cultivate greater wisdom, greater discernment, you'll understand better what to apply yourself to do, what to do. That's part of the function of wisdom, is to teach you what to do. Because you're not, wisdom only, isn't only supposed to teach you how to be uh, in an enlightened retirement. You know, sit back and, you know. But rather, you know, what do you do? How do you live your life? What are the choices you make? So how do you apply yourself? And so that's the topic for the next Dharma practice day, uh, which is energy or effort. So, um, the, so they, they, in some ways, it's nice to look at these paramis lists as kind of building on each other, and um, in our capacity to let go, to renunciation from last month, is a condition that sup- actually supports the growth of wisdom. The growth of wisdom supports our ability to apply ourselves, make energy, effort. So that's the topic, and um, I think we're meeting the first Friday of January. January 7th. January 7th. So, um, so we'll come back for energy. And uh, in thinking about today and talking to Inez a little bit, I thought perhaps it's time to do, to do a little different, the Dharma practice day a little different next time. Uh, I don't know what different would be. <laughs> but we've kind of, I feel like we've kind of last four times been in a certain kind of mode of this kind of dyads and discussions, and it's been great, rich, I feel. But maybe it's time to, um, to vary a little bit, so... So maybe, if you, have the, if you have the energy, we'll vary it. Uh, the, um, uh, are you the manager? Oh, you should, uh, so Aaron. So um, uh, we'd be nice if we could have about seven people stay behind to clean, clean up the place. And uh, so we have seven people who can tidy up. It takes about 10 minutes. Are you willing to do that? So one, two, three, four... Five, six, seven. Thank you. Yeah, so Aaron, Aaron, talk to Aaron, and Aaron will help you. I'd also like to remind you of the study group on the 12th, uh, Sunday the 12th at 1.30, and, um, uh, and it'll be after the community meeting, so, uh, so you can come to both. <laughs> <laughs>